Our Father in heaven, again, again, we praise you and thank you for all things as the Apostle Paul has exhorted us to do. For all things, because all things are under your control, because far beyond our knowledge and our own experience, which often might convince us otherwise, you really are working all things together for our good. And indeed, we do love you, Heavenly Father, and we love you with the same love that you've loved us with, for it is a great gift to us. And we thank you, Father, in Christ's name for for such a great redemption. Father, thank you for calling us by the word of your grace, removing the blindness that was on, on our hearts, working individually, working personally with us, uh, and even before we actually heard the gospel and believed it, even before that, you were uh, building walls of protection around us that we might be preserved. So, Father, I, I just thank you. We we know that uh, each one that has believed was even known by you, Heavenly Father, even before the foundation of the world. And these truths are just so expanding for our minds, which tend to be so limited and focused on, on things of this earth. So, Father, thank you for opening our minds and our hearts and softening them that we might believe the gospel and, and also desire to know your plan for the ages and, and that we might learn to rightly divide the word of truth, Heavenly Father. And may today's lesson be a part of that, that we might learn better how to rightly divide the word of truth and be more strengthened and encouraged and able to share with others. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would share with others. We know you bring them into our midst in various ways, and it is a marvelous and wonderful thing to see how you open doors. And so, Father, I just pray that we have our eyes open and our ears keenly focused on what we hear so that we can respond to what others say, so that we can say those words that might open the door to another heart and mind. So, Father, there's so many evidences around us of how you're working, and so few seem to be aware of them. Yes, we do know of many who name the name of Christ and who seem to be quite sincere, who yet are in denial regarding clear biblical teaching. So, Father, I pray that you'd give us the means and ability to speak truth to them, and may they hear it and believe it. And for those that are not truly saved because they haven't actually heard and believed the gospel, of grace, Father, I, I pray that you draw them to yourself and you should so choose that we are an instrument for that great deliverance. I pray that we would be ready and willing when the time comes to share with them. Father, we we have seen more openness. Times are dark but and darkening, but but we have seen more openness. 
in those around us. Father, I pray that we'd be bold to reach out to them and sensitive to their circumstances. Since so many, Father, are without you and without hope in this world, and they do not know where to turn for deliverance. We know, so I pray, Father, that you give us the means to reach out to them. Well, Father, our nation is broken and in a time of great crisis, and we are so concerned. We wonder, Heavenly Father, if you've delivered our nation over to the enemy, but pray that you you have not, and in fact are working behind the scenes and visibly as well, for that matter, to draw this nation back to the point where it may be used by you, Heavenly Father, as it has been for so many years previously. Father, may it again be a place where many are saved and taught and missionaries go forth and serve around the world that the gospel of grace might be revealed to many hearts. And so, Father, we pray for that and uh, just wait on you to see how you will work. And may this political season that's so troubling when we focus on it and don't think about our heavenly blessings and how you're working in the hearts of many. Father, may this election coming up be one of turning about this nation, we pray. Open our hearts now to your word, Heavenly Father, as we share it together. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, today we we go on. I'll say a few words regarding the subject we finished up last time, which is regarding the catching up into heaven's glory, the blessed hope, the rapture of the church before the tribulation period has begun on this earth. The tribulation period is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not the time of trouble for the saints of God who have been saved according to the riches of the grace of the Lord. That's uh, the time we're in now, the dispensation of the grace of God. But once we're caught up out of this world and have received our heavenly inheritance, having been joined together with our precious Lord and also all those members of the body of Christ who've gone on before, once that's happened and we're out of the way and God is no longer manifesting forth the riches of the glory of his grace, then the focus is back on Israel. Really Israel not only, but also Israel and the Gentile nations. That'll be the focus in the tribulation period. But the focus will be on Israel in the sense that Jerusalem will be the uh, the central focus for the work of the Lord and that area closely aligned with that. Okay, so the rapture, we finished up our teaching on that last time. It was one of a number of different dimensions of the mystery of the sacred secret revealed to Paul so that those who go to other parts of scripture to somehow understand 
the rapture and understand the timing of it and so forth. They cannot learn of it there because it was revealed through Paul. Uh, so we can't go to the other writers of scripture to understand the rapture of the church. We can go to other scriptures to understand much about the second coming of the Lord, but the second coming of the Lord is not the rapture of the church. They're different entirely. In fact, separated by seven years in God's uh, program. So that's uh, that. I mean, we looked last time at uh, several aspects of the teaching concerning the, the blessed hope. First, we looked at how the blessed hope delivers us from fear because the prophetic teachings relate to the coming of the Lord for Israel and uh, what leads up to that in the tribulation period and then what occurs afterwards in the millennial kingdom. So if we look at those scriptures, we may be very concerned because we see that great judgments of various kinds are coming and they're prophesied and therefore they shall occur, right? We go to those scriptures uh, we will be quite concerned if we somehow try to place ourselves within the realm of those teachings. So really, by understanding the blessed hope teaching that Paul gives us, we are delivered from fear of the future. And Paul makes that very clear in a number of places. We looked there. We looked Finally, we looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where Paul reveals what it will be like um, in the tribulation period. In verse 3, let no man deceive you that day, meaning the day of Christ, meaning the tribulation period itself, <laughs> shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So I pointed out how the falling away was the standing apart from. It is the catching up into glory. It is the blessed hope has to come first before those judgments fall upon this earth. That's an explicit statement to that effect in Second Thessalonians 2, verse number 3. Paul summarizes the... What the mental state you could say, or the you know how what kind of thinking we ought to have as believers today in in the latter part of chapter two of Second Thessalonians, I'll just read a couple of verses. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's at the rapture itself, right? The obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope, through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So we saw how 
the teaching concerning the rapture, concerning the blessed hope, is to encourage us greatly and give us hope. And part of the hope has to do with the fact that we will be caught up perhaps soon into heaven's glory. So praise God for that. Now, we also looked at how the blessed hope teaching itself protects us from license. So many have accused all of us who claim to be believers according to the riches of God's grace. They've accused us of license in living, saying, well, if you take the law away, then what will result except lawlessness? Therefore, we must keep the law. Well, (laughs) we looked at that last time. It's really kind of an introduction to what I want us to look at today. So I'm not going to give a further review from last week regarding that, since we'll be covering that again this morning. So let's look now at our study for today. The title will be The Mature Life of the Believer Under Grace endowed in every way to his glory. Okay? Part of the sacred secret revealed to Paul is how believers who are living under the abundance of grace may live and how they may glorify God. It's a very special kind of teaching, as it must be, of course, if it's revealed to Paul as part of the sacred secret, right? So believers in other ages... Were they to live by faith? They certainly were. But they were burdened in other ways than we are today, and in particular, and for much of that time period leading up to the current dispensation, they were bound by law. They were bound by Moses' law and then by the uh, early revelation of kingdom law. And so they were not able to say, as we are, that we're not under law but under grace. Well, because of the failure to rightly divide the word of truth and to see the distinctiveness revealed through Paul, legalism, law-keeping, legalism, has continued to be a dangerous diversion in the church. It certainly is today. There's no question about it. And what Paul writes is that Christian legalism is as dangerous to the maturing life of a believer under grace as cutting off the root of a tree is to its fruit bearing. We live in an area where there are many apple orchards, and we just had our first uh, uh, picking just recently, and it's a wonderful thing. We haven't yet, well, we did. We had eight apples from the farm sand last week. So uh, how many apples would have been produced if the root of the tree had been damaged or even severed, right? Think about that. There would be no fruit bearing, right? And yet what Paul writes is that Christian legalism placing ourselves under a law that does not apply to it, that is disruptive of the working of God in us under grace. So that's uh, 
short introduction to where we are today. Let me give you the actual outline. The first two points have to do with the gospel of God's grace. So the first one, the gospel of God's, by the way, this is an outline of the Paul's letter to the Galatians. And I should say that, well, since the Galatian letter is the letter that focuses more on the Christian life than any other letter, especially chapter 5 in Galatians, we could look at the Galatians letter and have a proper outline as how to understand his teaching on the Christian life. So we can't understand chapter 5 of Galatians without understanding chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. So what I'm giving you right now is a high-level outline of the letter to the Galatians. First of all, chapter 1, the gospel of God's grace was revealed to Paul by the heavenly Christ. <laughs> the gospel of grace revealed to Paul by the heavenly Christ. The second point, the gospel of God's grace exhorts believers to holy living, not license. Holy living, not license. That's chapter two. Uh, then, then Paul switches to the practical side of it. For those that possess God's grace in its abundance, because they have believed the gospel of God's grace, they are now in a position to become mature believers in Christ and to bear fruit. So the third part, very practical, under grace, Christian maturity must be by faith and never by the flesh. Christian maturity must be by faith and never by the flesh. That's Chapter 3 of Galatians, then chapter 4 of Galatians. Under grace, the believer possesses a foundational and multifaceted liberty. Liberty is the word, the key word here. Paul uses it. He uses it for a reason. It's a powerful subject, and uh, Paul writes directly concerning that there in that great Galatian letter. And we'll look at that near the end of our time together today. And then, finally, and this is a more general statement than the earlier one, under grace, legalisms have no rightful place. Legalisms have no rightful place. I'll explain what I mean by a legalism as we move ahead today. Okay, then next time we'll finish the subject uh, to see what chapter 5 of Galatians reveals about the dynamic of Christian living and how it's above and beyond our works. <laughs> above and beyond our works. Galatians chapter 5 gives the teaching on that. Praise God. Okay, so first of all, the gospel of God's grace was revealed to Paul by the heavenly Christ. Now, keep in mind as we go on through the teaching this morning, Paul is working up to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is going to be the main focus here. How should 
one live under grace. Uh, that's the subject of chapter five, right? But he's going to begin where he feels he must begin. We may not feel this is the right starting point. I mean, for some years, I certainly didn't think it could be the right starting point until I finally understood what he was writing here after a number of years of studying God's word and not seeing it at all. But Paul starts out in the right place in writing to the Galatians. And uh, let's read about that now. Gail, I'd like you to read that. And when you're, when you're reading it, be thinking that the topic here to begin with is that the gospel of God's grace was revealed to Paul by the heavenly Christ. Let me emphasize that, by the heavenly Christ. So, Gail, Galatians 1, verses 11 through 17. But I certify, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Thank you, Gail. <clears throat> Well, there's so much of great importance that Paul says here in this first chapter. And uh, I would say the main point he's making is the one that he makes so clearly there in in verses 11 and 12. Right. And that's that the gospel. Which he preaches. Was, as he says here, not after man, you might not understand what that means unless you read the next verse okay was not after man for now he's explaining what he means when he says the gospel he preaches is not after man for i neither received it of man neither was i taught it but by the revelation of jesus christ he wasn't taught this gospel for example, by another believer, not even by one of the 12 apostles. That isn't where Paul got the gospel. Many others living in that early Acts period certainly heard a lot about the Lord from the apostles, right? Paul was not receiving a gospel of any sort from them. In fact, he was opposed he, he was delivering them over to be persecuted and killed, right? That's as he says here. Okay. So it was not through man that he received that teaching. It wasn't even through the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. You can see that implied very strongly by what's written here, right? But he says it was nevertheless Christ himself 
who revealed the gospel that he preaches. Verse 12, I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, how could that be? <laughs> Jesus Christ had died. He was buried. He was raised glorious from the dead, gloriously from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God, right? He did not return to the earth again, but he did, nevertheless, catch Paul up into heaven's glory. And there it was revealed to him the gospel, the good news that Paul must preach. And that's what these verses are saying. It's very clear, right? So Paul, therefore, as he says here, he had no reason to go to Jerusalem even or, or anywhere, right, to talk to other apostles at that point. Instead, he went into the wilderness. <laughs> you might wonder why. Uh, well, he mentions in Act 26, we've looked at this before, no, not all that long ago, I think it's about a year ago, as to how there were other revelations given to Paul from heaven by Christ on other occasions, and not only what's recorded there in Acts chapter 9, where Paul was on the road to Damascus, and uh, that's when the great light from heaven came and he was spoken to directly by the Lord, right? So Paul had revelation directly from the heavenly Christ. So as I've titled this particular first point of our uh, subject today, the gospel of God's grace was revealed to Paul by the heavenly Christ. Okay, uh, well, there are consequences of that. Uh, he refers to this gospel as a distinctive gospel, not only in its origin, but also in its content, okay? It was from Christ himself, and the content of this gospel was distinctive. It had to be because Paul reveals that this gospel is part of the sacred secret. Therefore, it includes teachings that could never have been revealed before. Now, not everything in his gospel was part of the sacred secret. I mean, his gospel focuses very much, of course, on Jesus, our Lord, right? And how he sacrificed himself for the sins of the world and was raised glorious from the dead. That was revealed by Peter uh, on the day of Pentecost and by others, of course, right? It's not that that's distinctive to Paul. That's common with the others who went before, right? But there is something distinctive. It has to be true because in Romans 16, we read about that. And so, Anne, would you please read for us in Romans 16, verses 25 and 26. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Thank you, Anne. Okay, so Paul says here that this gospel that he now hear, notice he calls it 
my gospel. Verse 25, Romans 16. He also calls it my gospel in Romans 2.16. 2.16 and also 2 Timothy 2.8. Three places Paul calls the gospel. He preaches my gospel. It's very distinctive language. Okay? And uh, when he's... When he writes like this, he's emphasizing the special nature of this message. So this good news concerning the grace of God, which he, and he calls it that in 1 Corinthians 15, it's distinctive, okay? It, and it must be understood as such. If we do not understand it, we'll be instead believing the gospel of the kingdom, which is not the same, it's the gospel of the grace of God, though they're both about Jesus Christ. Okay? So as Paul writes here, there's content that also is different in the gospel, in his gospel, as uh, he wrote here. And therefore, that's part of the sacred secret, and one dimension of it, as we saw earlier, a number of weeks ago, is the gospel itself. Okay? Okay, now... There is a place where Paul writes about the gospel that he has believed. I mean, yes, that he believed and that he preached. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just quickly read that for you because that is the the clear statement, one point after another. What is it that's part of the gospel message? These are the things, okay? Not more, not less. This is the gospel that he preached. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you've believed in vain, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. So you see the see here clearly, Paul met Christ Jesus, but only in his heavenly position, right? Um, after the resurrection. You see that there so clearly revealed. But what is the gospel? Well, he says right there, first of all, verse 3, Christ died for our sins. And I would submit to you that that is the greatest point of distinction in the world today as to what the gospel is. Many say it is quite different from this because they either do not understand what it means to say that Christ died for our sins or they add to the scripture all kinds of other things. But Paul doesn't add 
to it, he just says the following. Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. That's it. And then, oh, by the way, he was seen of a great many, right? So they were there to certify, yes, indeed, he was raised from the dead. No question about it. It could not be denied. Hundreds and hundreds met Christ after his resurrection. Okay, so that's the gospel. There's not all kinds of other things added to it. There's nothing here about a special kind of water baptism, a special kind of spirit baptism. There's nothing here about what works are required, how one must keep the law, how one must endure to the end. There's nothing else here because these other things are not actually part of the Pauline gospel of the grace of God. And the key thing is that Christ died for our sins and then that he was gloriously raised from the dead, right? Why is that significant? Because the death for our sins was successful. <laughs> That's the purpose for which he came. Well, let's go on to the next point. The gospel of God's grace exhorts believers to holy living, not license. Linda, please read Galatians 2, verses 11 through 16 for us. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also carried away with their dissimulation. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, liveth after the manner of the Gentiles, and do not do, and do not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Amen. Amen. Thanks for reading that for us, Linda. What a powerful statement. And then some verses later, I'll have Patty read them. Build on top of that statement. Patty, verses 18 through 21. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Oh, my. These are some of the most wonderful words in the English language. And since our translation is translated from the Greek, 
There are some of the most wonderful words in the Greek language. It's amazing that Greek scholars don't know much about these words and how these words communicate this most blessed truth, right? So you see, it's all about life, but I thought he was writing about the gospel, wasn't he? Well, he was. He's writing about the gospel because the gospel of grace is the foundation for the life of a believer, okay? And the gospel of the grace of God and every aspect of it and all the teachings of grace don't lead us to live a life of lawlessness, but rather of righteousness. That's the fact of it. What does lead to lawlessness is placing oneself under the law because that excites the flesh. Okay, so that's Paul's message here. And he goes back to this situation when Peter came to Antioch and uh, basically because Peter, not only in Antioch, but uh, before in Jerusalem, along with James and the others, they they were not eating with the Gentiles there. But when he came to Antioch, he ate with the Gentiles initially. But then, because some came up from Jerusalem, from James, it says in Galatians 2.12, he then separated himself from the Gentiles. Well, the Antioch church was a predominantly Gentile church. Hmm. So you see, Peter caused a big division there in the church by the way that he acted. And Paul speaks directly against this and blames him for his hypocrisy. Okay? And so uh, he he teaches them the truth of it there in verses 15 and 16. Wow, he says, we who are Jews by nature, see, Paul was a Jew, of course, and not sinners of the Gentiles, meaning their lives were not all caught up in pagan idolatries and so forth, right? Uh, They were sinners, but not of the way that the Gentiles were. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Hmm. Okay. So rather than Peter being somehow able to certify whether the gospel Paul preached was the true gospel or not, they had an earlier meeting in Jerusalem regarding that. You read about that in Acts chapter 15. Paul was the defender of the faith, it turns out, and not Peter. And Peter was terribly confused as to the essence of the gospel of the grace of God. In fact, he writes about that in his second letter somewhat. I won't go there now. But notice that Paul puts the focus on living. He says, in fact, this amazing thing in verse 19. He says, I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. 
I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Verse 21 is like a lighthouse of truth and faith. Paul sets forth himself as the example. I do not frustrate the grace of God. Well, others were frustrating the grace of God indeed. That included Peter at that time, right? And included many others. What about today? Today, how many are preaching the grace of God and its abundance? Aren't many adding works of one kind or another to the gospel? Just like at that time, circumcision was being held up as a requirement. Why circumcision? Because the law required circumcision, right? The law was given to Israel, required circumcision. Oh, my. But Paul says the law killed him. <laughs> he says, I threw the law, I'm dead to the law. He writes the same thing in Romans 7, 17. You might want to go there and study that, right? Uh, the law, he placed himself under a law after he was a believer, <laughs> according to the riches of God's grace, and the law killed him. He, it, it just defeated him entirely because he could not keep it. And the harder he tried, the more the sin nature responded with lawlessness. So he learned that the means of grace all by itself was the motivator to righteous living. It was not the law. We are free from the law, Paul writes in these verses, right? Now, if we go on to chapter 3 and chapter 4, uh, chapter 4 is an allegory. I think I'll have to save chapter 4 for next time. But chapter 3, we at least want to touch on today as we close today. Chapter 3, under grace, Christian maturity must be by faith and never by the flesh. Oh, my. Christian maturity must be by faith and never by the flesh. <clears throat> it's the most important and fundamental teaching for us to understand how Christian living today is to be accomplished, right? Christian maturity must be by faith and never by the flesh. It's kind of a radical statement. Are we not in the flesh? I mean, where do we live, right? Fleshly bodies. It's where we find ourselves, right? There are the passions of the flesh that easily dominate us, right? We have not been delivered from that, as the false teachers may say we have. Many are saying today that believers have been delivered from that, and the sin nature is no longer even a reality in us. Oh, they're wrong, indeed. And Paul says they're wrong. So uh, let's read just a few verses. I'd like, uh, Lydia, I'd like you to read uh, the opening three verses in chapter three of Galatians. Lydia? O foolish, o foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you, that ye 
should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath, hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the meaning or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made, made perfect by the flesh? Thank you, Lydia. Well, that's a strong statement, isn't it? A very strong statement. <laughs> oh, my. So Paul is addressing directly the false teachings that had come into the churches in Galatia by these who were promoting Jewish principles of life, including circumcision and the law, right? So that heresy that had been passed around there in that church was damnable. I mean, Paul wrote the strongest possible words concerning it. And why? Because it destroyed the entire meaning of Christ's death for sin and sinners and its full consequence. So uh, Christ had fully paid the penalty for sin and had been raised gloriously from the dead. And that believers who've been saved now by grace through faith alone are not subject to keeping the Mosaic law, including various aspects of that, uh, such as circumcision. Okay, so Paul is going to make his defense of the truth in a very simple way. It's going to be so, so very, very simple. He says this to them, don't you remember <laughs> he says oh foolish galatians who hath bewitched you in other words it was a satanic issue that had come into their midst who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth the truth that i preached unto you do you not remember the gospel well how does he write it oh foolish galatians who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Oh, my, 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 my. There's a lot in that verse, is there not? Uh, then the others, this only what I learn of you, received you. In other words, don't you remember how you were saved? Received you the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? <laughs> they knew how they had begun. It was by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Okay, so Christian maturity must be by faith and never by the flesh. So he simply says, don't you remember? But what did he ask them to remember when he said those special words? Remember who they are. They have been saved through Paul's preaching okay so what does he say he says don't you remember when i came to you and preached christ crucified and risen again and that when you saw me preach that message you saw me as a what i was thinking of the word representative but let's use a stronger word as a stand-in <laughs> for the risen Christ. Amen. Well, that's deep teaching. Paul had been so humbled under the hand of God 
that he could preach powerfully concerning the crucified and risen Christ in such manner that the Galatians could see Christ in him as he preached those words that Christ had given him. Let me repeat that. Paul had been so humbled under the hand of God, and how did that happen? Well, many things, stonings, shipwrecks, a lot of things. Paul had been so humbled under the hand of God that he could preach powerfully concerning the crucified and risen Christ so that the Galatians could see Christ in him as he preached the words that Christ had given him. And so he writes, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Oh my, it's overwhelming to read it, isn't it? I'll read also from Galatians 4 before we close today. Galatians 4 verses 13 through 16, where Paul writes specifically about who he was when he came to Galatia. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh, this is verse 13, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness he spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, he would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So it was a simple reminder. Remember how it was when I came to you in Galatia. Demonstrating the grace of God through Jesus Christ, even his death and his resurrection. Praise God. What a wonderful thing. Paul was so empowered to preach this special message that he calls his gospel. Oh my. Next time we'll continue, but let me... uh, Simply say this, as Paul ends chapter 3 of Galatians, he says, You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we have liberty from all the dividing teachings, all of the polarized viewpoints, all of the history of class structure, uh, none of it relates to the precious truth of grace. Our lives are above it. We're even above the law. How can that be? Because the teaching of grace provides the dynamic for Christian living. I've asked Patty to 
read a wonderful hymn for us now <laughs> that states these truths so clearly. And the name of that hymn is Free from the Law, Oh, Happy Condition, written by a great hymn writer of the faith named P.P. Bliss. Free from the law, oh, happy condition. You all know it, I'm sure. Free from the law, oh, happy condition. Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ has redeemed us once for all. There on the cross, your burden of bearing. Thorns on his brow, your Savior is wearing. Never again your sin need appall. You have been pardoned once for all. Now we are free. There's no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto me. Oh, hear his sweet call. Come and he saves us once for all. Children of God, oh, glorious calling. Surely his grace will keep us from falling. Passing from death to life at his call. Blessed salvation once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O doubter, believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us. Once for all. Sorry, my voice isn't better, but what a wonderful hymn. Christ hath redeemed us once for all, so we are free from the law. Oh, brethren, believe it and receive it. Amen? Amen. Amen. We continue on next time to find out what the dynamic is for the Christian life. What takes the place of the law in the life of the believer? That's our subject next time. Praise God. Well, I hope this has been a blessing to you all. It's certainly been a blessing to me. These scriptures have transformed my life and hopefully yours as well. And any questions or comments before we close today? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the perfect salvation that indeed has no limitations. It has accomplished the purpose you sent our Lord Jesus to this earth for, which was to die for our sins and thereby to pay the penalty for them. And uh, indeed, Father, uh, our sins are great. Uh, anyone would have been enough to separate us eternally from you. But Heavenly Father, thank you that you have paid the full penalty for them all. And so we stand before you in Christ Jesus as righteous. How? Because his righteousness has been imputed to our account, counted as our own. So praise your name, Heavenly Father. And we're so thankful that you sent forth our precious Lord that he shed his blood abundantly and freely, that uh, his death was accounted sufficient, uh, 
and that we have been set free and declared righteous uh, through his wonderful resurrection. So praise your name, Heavenly Father, and may you be a great blessing to us as we we live life here in the world, but not of it. And may you encourage us each step of the way. We pray in Christ's name and amen, amen, amen. Praise God for his wonderful grace. Enjoy the Lord, all.